Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. dive into this week's episode, I have a few exciting things to share. There has been a lot going on behind the scenes over here. This summer, I had the vision for teaching artist support groups and critique groups in a variety of models. I brainstormed with a few amazing teaching artists. Thank you so much, Nikki Brunoli, Yvonne Coons, and Adjoa Burroughs. Then we all got totally overwhelmed with teaching and juggling all the things. But I am excited to share that we started our support group. If you are feeling like you need a community of teaching artists to talk with on a regular basis, join us. I'm keeping signups open on a rolling basis for a little while longer, and it's free to join. I have also been working with Maria Coit to continue our online exhibition space, Contemporary Art for Young Audiences. And I'm thrilled to share that we have an open call coming up. I seriously cannot wait to share more about this, including our incredible guest juror. We're finalizing a few details before it goes live. If you would like to be the first to know when the open call is available, join our mailing list. And finally, I have been working on a workshop for the upcoming Unconference for Art Educators hosted by the Art Class Curator from November 9th through 13th. My workshop focuses on printmaking techniques that can be adapted for at-home learning or in the classroom on a tight budget. In this workshop, I'll show you several methods that you can use, whether you're teaching online or in person. Discover common pitfalls and how to address them follow along and make your own prints with me, or simply watch and learn. In addition to techniques, I'll be sharing inspirational artists I connect to my lessons with a focus on living women and Black, Indigenous, and artists of color. My workshop covers seven printmaking methods and encourages hands-on participation. So join this free online art teacher conference with presentations from art educators to energize you and engage your students, all from the comfort of home. Last summer, over 8,000 art educators tuned in to watch 50 incredible presentations over five days for the first ever Call to Art Unconference. We talked about artworks, STEAM, TAB, equality and inclusivity, working with play, teaching online, classroom management, and so much more. The art education community came together to support one another during a time of great uncertainty. For many of us, this school year is still filled with uncertainty, and our calendars are blank instead of filled with opportunities for conferences, connections, and professional development. The call to art is louder than ever. Our students need us, and we need each other. That's why I'm thrilled to be part of the second Call to Art Unconference. Real art educators, including me, will share their knowledge, passion, and expertise with the art education community. 
you can find the registration link in the show notes. It is free to attend during the conference from November 9 to 13. When you register, you have the option to grab an on-demand pass for extended access and PD certificates for each session. I can't wait to virtually see you there. Eileen Powers talks about looking at an issue from all sides and how artists are problem solvers. I love how she applies this both physically to the engineering feat of creating hair out of all kinds of materials, and metaphorically to the challenge of adjusting to big changes and getting through and talking about hard things like illness and death. She also talks about embracing differences and finding joy in even the most difficult situations. There is so much in her project and in this conversation that is super applicable to the many challenges facing us here in the U.S. and across the world today. Eileen Powers is an artist, photographer, graphic designer, and cancer survivor. She was living on Cape Cod and working as a freelance graphic designer when she received her lymphoma diagnosis. From that moment on, her life changed and would never be the same. In January 2019, she began a rigorous chemotherapy regimen. After the second treatment, her hair began to fall out and she just decided to shave the rest off. The change was frightening. It took six weeks before she could look in the mirror, but when she did, she became oddly fascinated. She saw a blank slate, a clean sheet of paper, and the potential for an art project. In the past, she'd run after people who looked different and asked to take their picture. Now she was that person. When people started to drop off casseroles and pot roasts, which she couldn't eat, she had an idea. Why not take all of that energy and funnel it into something positive? She invited friends and family to make hair for her out of surprising materials, which she then styles and photographs into a series of humorous and colorful self-portraits. As of now, Eileen has nearly 100 heads. She has been interviewed and asked to show her work in galleries and exhibitions in the U.S. and abroad. Eileen currently lives on Cape Cod and returned to the Lesley University MFA program in June 2020 after a two-year cancer hiatus. And here's an excerpt from her artist statement. The project is a catalyst for the expressive activity of others and inspires making. I challenge viewers to think about cancer and chemotherapy as a call to action and ask them to turn limitations into possibilities. The photographic style of the project is influenced by the repetitive nature and immediacy of digital stock vintage fashion photography and the sexist print advertisements of the 60s and 70s. I use the serial format of the ad campaign to counter the cancer colloquialisms, militaristic metaphors, and warrioristic language, purposely omitting headlines and text. The project attempts to use forms of commercial art as a visual framework for subverting hair loss into an opportunity for invention, recycling, and positivity. 
Hello. So I am talking with Eileen Powers, and I'm so excited to hear about your story and this incredible project that you have started. I like to start with just a little bit of background. Could you kind of walk us through your story as an artist and your interest in education? Sure. As a child, like many other children, I drew a lot of horses, and we've got a lot of crayon drawings (laughs) of horses (laughs) around in my basement. And as I grew grew up, I became a photographer and also a graphic designer. And and that's Mm -hmm. where I make my living today. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I was diagnosed with lymphoma Mm -hmm. and I was treated for the next year and a half, I would say, I, I became cancer-free in January, end of January, 2020. Yay! So cancer, yes, thank you. Yay. Cancer had a huge impact on me as an artist. I also am a writer. And I think that it, it really changed the way I look at things. And it also changed me both inside and out mm-hmm. in good ways and, and in negative ways. But I'd say overall, my experience was very positive and I'm very lucky to be cancer free today. And I'm very grateful. Yeah, absolutely. That's an incredible thing and incredible. It must have felt amazing to get that final. You are free of this thing. Well, I think, yeah, it's funny, you know, as an artist, I think that we... I think that I temper things a little bit differently, especially as an artist who has had cancer. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who has cancer knows that it's possible that it can come back. Right. So we sort of live scan to scan. And I I measure, as T.S. Eliot said, you know, I sort of measure my life in tablespoons or in Mm -hmm. teaspoons, right? I, I sort of see what I can do in the time frame that I have. And my next scan won't be until October. But I think I, I, I bear that in mind every day. And that's yeah. something that's always with you. And I think it, it affects your activity and it affects your art on many levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you feel like it's made you lower your inhibitions around art making? Yes, I would say absolutely. There are ways of making art that I would have never entertained before. I really mm-hmm. felt that my strong suit was photography. I enjoyed street photography. I live close to the beach. So mm-hmm. I do my version of street photography at the beach. Yeah, I'm a portrait photographer. And I also do illustration and through my job. And I really didn't entertain ever being the subject of my art. Mm. And I realized when I had cancer and when I was quarantined that I really needed to, to do something. I needed to make something. And I didn't know what that was going to be, but it involved me. <laughs> yeah. I think your story is so powerful and just it's not dissimilar from other people who have had cancer, but what you've done with, you know, being able to share your story and let your art get a little more personal is really powerful. I think I realized at one point that I had to be the subject. Mm -hmm. I, I think when you, I think a lot of people who have cancer or are going through treatment of any kind, I I would single out cancer specifically. They want to have their story told. They want to, they want to talk about the experience, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that we have the language often to talk about what it's like to think about death or face Mm -hmm. death or 
face a long-term treatment. I think it's very awkward for friends and family. And one of the objects, I would say, or goals of my project was to help you sort of go through that language Mm -hmm. and maybe bypass it, examine it, bypass it, and find another way to communicate with friends or people that wanted to help. And in cancer specifically, I would say that, you know, there's still this sort of antiquated notion that, you know, you gave yourself mm. cancer. Uh. You, if you had only eaten enough <sighs> kale, you know, you would not have gotten cancer. And, and I received a blender and a bag full of fresh groceries from someone who was very kind and very thoughtful and really wanted to do something good for me. But that made me mm-hmm. angry. It made me angry because I felt like I was taking care of myself and that wasn't the problem. Mm -hmm. I really feel that there's a stigma around certain kinds of illness and and around cancer now. And and so much has changed in cancer. And and I do want to point out to anybody out there who has cancer that you did not give it Mm -hmm. to yourself. So don't ever buy into that. You didn't give it to yourself. We all have our circumstances And what we do is we make the best of them and we do activities to help us work through that and projects and art. Yes. Uh, I want to say that again. You did not give it to yourself. That is such a a powerful message. And And I, as you were talking about that, I started to kind of draw this connection um, with another mother that I've spoken to on the podcast who has uh, a child with a disability and talked very vulnerably about this idea that like somehow it was something she did in pregnancy. Um, And I even like my daughter needs glasses, which is a very minimal thing, but I had Mm -hmm. the same idea that like it was my fault somehow. Like I didn't eat enough carrots, like you're saying, or, you know, I didn't do the right thing. It's my fault somehow that this, this has happened. Um, So I feel like that's something that people with any kind of like health issue or, you know, as minor or as gigantic as it can be, it's this mentality that, is somehow just exists in our society that it's, it's our fault. (laughs) Right. And I think that that's something that we can discuss in our artwork Mm -hmm. and we can discuss it verbally with Mm -hmm. people. You know, I've learned to sort of, you know, work with the cancer metaphors that people have and respond to those in person when someone you know, says, you know, you're such a fighter, you know, you're a hero, Mm -hmm. you know, you've been through such a Mm -hmm. battle. Well, you know, those militaristic metaphors are outdated when it comes to cancer. Certainly my body is ramped up. Certainly my body did some fighting. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I wasn't in Mm -hmm. a war. I've never been in a war and I wouldn't know what that's Mm -hmm. like. So I felt that the language that is used by, by people that I know and, and in Mm -hmm. the media, you know, really falls short of the experience that, that we have when it comes to illness or any, any sort of serious illness 
or treatment. And, and to, to add to that, I, I, how many times have we heard on TV or the radio that so-and-so, you know, lost their battle mm. with cancer? Well, people with cancer aren't losers. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not a loser because you got cancer. And I, and I really want to stress that as well, because there is this feeling, I think, that a lot of us have as patients that, you know, like you were saying that, you know, I, I might not, have, did I do something wrong? Did, did I, you know, did I expose myself to something that gave me mm-hmm. this, you know? So I, I think we really need to think about just absolving ourselves of any sort of blame for disease and moving forward and seeing what we can do with the time that we have and with the bodies that we have and with our brains and what kind of activities can we do to keep ourselves engaged and to teach others that these sorts of metaphors and language you know really need to be expanded to and brought up to date and and be more contemporary i would say yeah and you talked earlier about sort of the positive effects that it's had on you and i feel like you're sharing that sort of positivity through the project that you've created out of this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project? Yeah. Sure, absolutely. I I like many other people had a bunch of friends and family who wanted mm-hmm. to help. And I have a very good friend who has multiple myeloma. Mm-hmm. And she said to me when I was diagnosed, She said, you know, people are going to want to help you, but they're not going to know Mm -hmm. how, but let them help you because it makes them feel better. And I didn't quite know what she meant until I started to go through chemo. Mm -hmm. So, so I've had, uh, 11 rounds of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. I've had, um, major abdominal surgery to remove tumors. I've had a stem cell transplant and I've also had immunotherapy. So I've had a wide range of treatments mm-hmm. that ultimately led me to be cancer free. But during that time, you know, I would receive cards and letters from people and, and wonderful sentiments, but they were things that I couldn't use necessarily that, that weren't helpful in a day to day way. And one of the things that, that would happen a lot is, is people would leave food for me. They leave pot roast or casserole or macaroni and cheese on, on my deck. And, and I was, and it was winter time when I, when I first started getting treatment. So they would leave it outside and it would be cold. And, and I would think to myself, you know, this is great. You know, I can't eat anything. I'm nauseous. My partner, Tom was well, yeah. but I took a lot of it, right? I took a lot of it and I put it in the mm-hmm. freezer. And so one day I open the freezer and I look in there and I see all this aluminum foil and Tupperware and I'm like, oh, I have got a lot of friends with a lot of energy. There must be something else I can do. There must be a way I can channel that energy into something that's going to be helpful for both them and and for mm-hmm. myself. So, you know, as you probably know, when, when you lose chemo, when you have chemotherapy, you lose mm-hmm. your hair and some of us lose all of our hair. So I, I lost all of my hair. So I lost my eyebrow <sighs> hair, but the hair on my head, um, I, I lost yeah. hair everywhere. And, you know, it took me 
about six weeks to look at mm. her. And it, and it was extremely difficult. I was yeah. frightened. I was frightened at the person I had become. Mm. And it took, you know, it took several days for me to get used to what I was looking at, to, to get used to that person. But when I did, I kind of saw an opportunity. I, I became as an artist, I became fascinated with my bald head. I was thinking to myself, well, well, how can I work with this as a material? You know, I'm a photographer. I don't generally work with materials, but, but what can I do? And you know, I started stenciling words on my head. So I had blonde on my head on one side. I had brunette mm. on the other. And I started working that way. And then, you know, I think just one day I just put something on my head to replace my hair. And it seemed like the natural mm. thing to do. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, this might be something that could make people laugh and, and, and bring some joy to people who are going through the same thing mm -hmm. that I am. So I just put a kind of a call out there on Facebook. I said, you know, would anybody like to make hair for me? And and people did, and, and I did. So I make some of the hair. Other people make hair. Some people I, I don't even know will send mm. hair to me. And it's become sort of this collaborative art project where people send me something, and then I can look at it and interpret it, and then photograph it. And my partner, Tom, I, I taught him how to use the camera. So he actually takes the photos in the project. Mm. So it's, it's become this sort of wide ranging collaborative artwork. And I, and I feel very strongly that the activity and the mm -hmm. making is the most important part of it, that that's really the artwork. That's the beauty in it. The pictures are just sort of a, a reference for what has mm -hmm. happened. But I, but I really feel like it's, it's that spirit of, of people wanting to help and wanting to collaborate that makes the project. Work. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that idea that the photos are really just sort of a way to document this feeling and this experience and this collaboration that's happening. Yeah, I, I think that people see the pictures and sometimes when they see the pictures out of context, they don't quite understand that it's really about the mm -hmm. process. For me, it's about the process. You know, I've shown the work in different places, but I think, I think part of it is, you know, you need to kind of be part of the spirit of collaboration. And if you've never collaborated before, it really is an engaging and enlightening process. And you can learn so much from other people that I think sometimes as artists, there's that myth that we, we work alone and we work at night or, mm -hmm. you know, we're suffering in, in some sort of dark garret <laughs> somewhere, but you know, that's not modern day. Modern day is all about collaboration. And I think that this is sort of a very contemporary way of dealing with a problem. It's sort of like crowdsourcing mm -hmm. in a way, you know, it's like, you know, let's ask other people what they think and let's get their feedback and let's see what we can make together. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And I, I love also how it, this project came about through, you know, seeing what people were offering to help and you thinking, well, there's gotta be something that is really, truly helpful for me and for others and connecting that with the idea of, like you were saying before, how outdated the language is around cancer and this sickness. Well, I really missed doing something. Mm -hmm. I missed making. And I think when you can't, when you're in a situation 
as an artist or even as a person who has an expressive way of, of dealing with mm-hmm. issues, which could be gardening, it could be cooking, it could be any sort of making, right? That activity that really frees your brain up to, to, to let it work in other ways and we can think mm-hmm. in other ways. And I think when we aren't allowed to do that, not that I wasn't allowed in the hospital, it was just yeah. difficult that, you know, I really felt a yearning to make something. I really wanted to be participating in something. And I, I hadn't felt that way before. I went along and I, I made my art and I did it alone. Mm. And I would be satisfied when I took a, a picture that I was, you know, really happy with. But I think that I was shortchanging myself in that. I wasn't really part of a community and now I feel that I'm part of a community and I've met so many people through the project and so many people have become interested in, in the materials or maybe they don't know how to make something and, and we can work together to, to get something that works. Mm-hmm. But I spent so many weeks in the hospital that, you know, cancer is all about waiting. You, you mm-hmm. wait for, for treatment, you wait for test results, you receive a treatment and you wait to see if you're going to have any sort of, you know, reaction to that mm-hmm. treatment, you know, you wait for more information, you know, so it's a, this process of doing something and waiting and then, you know, having a test and waiting. So, so I think as a person and as an artist, I sort of worked with that modality in, in this project. I felt that During treatment, I had to give myself over to a team of medical professionals that knew much better Mm -hmm. than me how to make me well. But I took that idea, that idea of control, and I said, well, I'm going to mimic that sort of cancer treatment process, and I'm going to give up some of my control to Mm -hmm. other people and ask them to make something for me. And then I'll sort of regain it back with the way in which I interpret what Mm -hmm. they make. Or, or the materials that they leave me. So it really is sort of like on many layers, it's, it's about cancer, but it's also about identity. Mm-hmm. It's about control and it's about creating something that replaces what we've mm-hmm. lost. It has a lot to do with loss and we all deal with loss on many levels. And this project deals with loss. That's a, you know, an obvious mm-hmm. loss, but I think it's also a way of dealing with any kind of loss. I think it's it's made me explore loss much more than I, I had in the past. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and a powerful thing to be exploring something that we so often kind of shy away from thinking about and talking about. Yes. Yeah. And you talked about earlier about sharing sort of how to work with materials. I know you've done a few sort of workshops. Would you want to talk about that teaching a little bit? Sure. I think that there's a lot of engineering Mm -hmm. that goes into the And, you know, you'd be surprised, you know, when I first received pieces, you know, I, I was just shocked at how people sort of knew how to make Mm. something because again, I don't work with materials so much. And I was really interested in how people put things Mm -hmm. together. So when I talk to to kids or when I talk to groups of people who are interested in making things, the first thing I I really bring up is, you know, think a little bit about the engineering. Mm -hmm. 
you need some sort of base to work on. And the base can be something very simple. It could be as simple as, I, in fact, I'm wearing one right now. I'm wearing a, a, a piece that was made out of gourmet food magazines mm. and it was shredded into hair and curled. And, and it's really cute. It looks like an old haircut that yes. I used to have. And it's just based though on one of those little vegetable bags that mm. you get when you, when you go to the produce department and you put your, you know, your peppers or your onions in a yeah. little bag. So that's all she did. And, and she used tape, but she used it in such a way that, you know, it fits on my head. It's comfortable. I can get it to stay in, in, a, in one place. And I think, you know, thinking that through, you know, there are lots of ways to do that. You can use a paper uh-huh. bag. I've had people use pieces of sweatshirt, like the, the sleeve of a mm-hmm. sweatshirt as a base. I've had other people use swimming caps. Mm-hmm. So there's probably materials that you have at home that would make a base. Don't underestimate the power of regular tape. Yeah. I mean, you can tape something together very easily and then just glue layers of, of materials on top mm-hmm. of that. So, so it's kind of like, you know, just thinking through. And then I have a couple of pieces that are more elaborate. So I have one that's made out of pipe insulation and it's really mm. fun and it's it's really high. It's really big. Yes. The first ones I received. Uh. And it's based on a bicycle helmet uh. that my friend had in his garage. And so he, he just went to the hardware store, bought a little bit of pipe insulation, made this sort of mod funky 60s sort of, you know, headdress for me. And it and it's fabulous looking. And I think it's just thinking simply and thinking about what we have. He also made one that was made out of this sort of orange tape and orange plastic string. I don't know where he got that from, <laughs> but it's it's something that could be moved and molded. And I think one of the things mm. I love about a piece is, is when it comes in and it actually acts like hair and mm. acts less like a hat. Like I love when it feels like hair. You know, and, and it moves or I can touch it or I can flip it around. And, and that really makes the project come alive when, when there's motion to, to the piece. Yeah. You know, I, and, you know, again, I'm not a sculptor. And, and again, I, I don't really work with materials, but I really learned a lot about, you know, movement, looking at something from all different sides, mm-hmm. which is another, you know, teaching modality for this project is, you you really have to take a look at it from all, all views, you know, what does it look like? How does it behave? And, and also, is it comfortable Mm -hmm. to wear? Because I have a number of them that aren't. Yes. I have a few that leave dents in my head, but, but I'll wear them anyway. But it's just, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it could be a really incredible project for art teachers to take on and share with their classes, especially thinking about now so many of us teaching online and having students who really don't have much in the way of materials, you know, like you were talking about using those produce bags, using like old cut up magazines, using what you have around the house. You know, there's sometimes there are holiday, you know, there might be tinsel Mm -hmm. from holidays. You might have dried flowers at home. You might, I have one that's made out of recyclables. Mm -hmm. So I have one that's made out of plastic bottles and it's made out of some straws Uh. And the um, bases for um, the 
toilet paper rolls and you know paper towel yeah. rolls. So you know there's probably something around that you can sort of bend or mold or cut or glue into into something else. And I, I urge everyone, you know, if you've got a basement or a garage or a recycle bin, bin take a look. You know, see what what you have in there, or if there are things that you're thinking of throwing away. I've actually had people shred different fabrics. Mm-hmm and make things out of fabric that way. I had one person make me what essentially is sort of a hat, like a, a winter hat out of out of dryer lint. Oh. And then, yeah, yeah, and then we used tissue paper as hair. I mean, it was a very complicated construction doing that. But, you know, that was something that she wanted to do and it was something she had access to. And I will say that Later on, she found out that she had breast cancer. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, in my communications with her, I think, you know, participating in the project really was something that was a highlight for her mm-hmm. that really sort of prepared her for maybe in our discussions for, for what could happen. Yeah. And that's part of this is that you'd be surprised that when you're making something, anybody who's collaborated, I think, and made something, whether it's cookies or dinner with other people, you know, conversation comes up. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes this project is sort of a bridge for those difficult conversations. You can talk a, about a lot of things in different ways when you are making something. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about my hair loss. So, I can talk about what that's like. I can talk about how it can hurt, you know, mm-hmm. because it, it does hurt. Mm-hmm. And I can talk about how I perceived people before and how I perceive them now. So so it, mm-hmm. it, it opens up a huge range of, of conversation for people and interactivity. And I think that's so important around illness. I, th- I think really, we, we really need to learn how to have difficult conversations like this and how to talk about illness and not be afraid. And mm-hmm. a project really helps to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that phrase that it's a bridge for these difficult conversations. And it's great for kids because mm-hmm. no matter who you are, at some point in your life, someone you know is going to have cancer. It's in, almost inevitable. Mm-hmm. I think we all know someone or we've heard of someone, or we've lost someone. So I think, you know, the project is good for kids on a number of levels. They can see me, like my hair is growing back now, but I do shave my head to keep up with the project. If people want to make something for me, I'm, I'm happy to shave my head. Yeah. And I think it's good for kids to see me like that, to see me different mm-hmm. and to see what I'm doing with the difference that I have. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think kids are so adaptable. You know, they embrace this project when I talk to them about it and and they understand, they understand what it's like to be different. And I think that they see me as an adult and they see me adapting to different ways of, of dealing with that. And I think that that's so healthy. And I, I feel that it really helps to spread acceptance of mm-hmm. people. You know, we can accept others, even though they're different, right? It's a very basic idea, but I think we can do that through making. Yeah. And that idea that making and art and collaboration as a way to have these difficult conversations, not only around an illness, but also around differences and what's going on with people that are not like me, what's their experience. You know, sometimes those are conversations that adults don't want to have, but children are so open to that. And uh, it's so important to just have those conversations. 
and learn about each other. And children, they can, you know, children just, you know, they have a way of seeing that adults Mm -hmm. don't. And I think that we can nurture that and teaching, you know, about differences is is so wonderful. I think we teach so much more about difference now than we ever have Mm -hmm. before and acceptance and, and learning to see in different ways and, and really looking at what's around us. And I think that's so wonderful. And I, I hope that, you know, teachers will go out and, and try this project and, and, and talk about what it's, you know, what it's like to, to know somebody who maybe has a difference and what can we do about that difference? So maybe the loss is hair, maybe the loss is something else. What can we do through art that can help, you know, ameliorate that loss or, or build something new where that loss Mm -hmm. was? Yeah, talking about those hard things, loss, and even, you know, the idea of death and, you know, losing more than than hair, losing someone you love. I feel like it is important to talk about those ideas with even with young kids because it's it's part of life. Well, I, I did lose someone mm-hmm. that I love to pancreatic mm-hmm. cancer and it was before I found out I had cancer and her name was also mm-hmm. Eileen and she was a teacher. And I have to say that she taught me so much about what it's like to live with disease, what it's like to live with grace, and what it's like to deal with yourself day to day. And I would not have been able to come up with a project like this if it weren't Mm -hmm. for her. I mean, I feel indebted to her. I watched her change over the span of a year and a half and I and I watched her her mm-hmm. die. And I think that that experience prepared me for you know my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think we ever are ready to hear that we have cancer. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can ever really prepare for that. Right. But I think seeing her example gave me a baseline of how to live my life what to say, and how to interact with others on a meaningful Mm -hmm. level. Yeah. And you've done so much with that, with collaborating with others and interacting and sharing this, being able to talk about hard things, but also bring light to it. Yeah. I mean, the the whole goal of the project really is to bring joy and levity to people who are going through cancer or, and their caregivers or anyone who's going through, you know, a difficult illness or, or a difficulty. I think you can apply the way this project is done you know, to so many mm-hmm. situations. It's definitely an expressive therapy mm-hmm. modality. And whether you're making hair for someone, whether you're building a sculpture, whether you, you know, need to make a cake or, or whatever it is, that's expressive therapy to me. I mean, I, I think anything like that is healthy and creative and allows us to really think through a problem. And, and isn't that what we do every day as artists? We need to think through a problem and solve yeah. it. And some of our problems might be a little bit more intense like mm-hmm. cancer, you know, but, but being an artist helped me think that through. It helped me think about all the different scenarios. It helped me think about all the different treatments. It, it, 
you know, when you have cancer, there are a, a thousand little decisions that you have to make mm-hmm. yourself. Like I said, I spent a lot of time in the hospital and a lot of it was alone. I mean, I, I, the hospital is far from where I live. It's about an mm-hmm. hour and a half. And I certainly didn't expect people to come every day and visit me and come to Boston and, and battle, this battle. <laughs> that traffic using a terrible cancer mm-hmm. metaphor. Don't say that. Don't, don't say that people battle mm-hmm. cancer. You know, you have cancer and you're treated for cancer. But I didn't expect people to really come and visit me. And I'm a very independent person. So I managed my time. Obviously, I didn't feel well. It wasn't like I was on vacation Mm. or anything. I mean, you know, I'm getting chemotherapy and getting all kinds of experimental drugs. We didn't know how I was going to react to a lot of those Mm -hmm. drugs. And sometimes I had negative reactions. But I think that, you know, as an artist, I, I really took that empty time that I had And it allowed me to really free my mind and think things through. And that's not a luxury that we have day Mm -hmm. to day. You know, we are so busy and we're doing so many things. We're taking care of our families. We are interacting with our friends. We we might be taking care of, you know, our parents, whatever it is that, that we need to do and working and all of that, that being sick in a way was a grace I didn't expect. It gave me time to think about things I wouldn't have thought of. And it gave me time to be creative in a different way, in a way that I didn't know I could be. Amazing. And I want to go back to your kind of history and journey. I know you're right now in an MFA program. Did you start that program while you were, you know, in this this time? I'm just thinking of you in the hospital really having more time to think and be creative? Is that when you kind of dove into an MFA program? So what happened was I had started, I had started my MFA program. When did I start that? In January of 2018. So I was in my second semester when I found out Mm. I had cancer. And so that was in September Mm. of 2018. And I found out that I was going to need chemotherapy and, and that we didn't really know what course of treatment I was exactly going to have at that point. So I thought a lot about being in the program. I I wanted to finish the program, but I knew that I couldn't do it then. And I, in effect, took a year off from the program. I didn't start again until June of this year. So maybe that's longer than a year, a year and a half. And I wrote papers, you know, I wrote a couple of papers while I was sick. And then I, then I really sort of had to just stop doing that. I think I think what happened was, I, you know, a lot of people have a sim- have similar stories to me when it comes to cancer. I I urge anyone who gets diagnosed with any kind of cancer to get a second opinion mm-hmm. and to see a specialist in that cancer. I live in a small community, so I did go see a hematologist, but you know, I think there was a disagreement between that hematologist, the first one I saw, and and my current hematologist Mm -hmm. in the way I was going to get treated and in what was the best way to sort of work through my cancer. So I went to a much larger teaching hospital Mm -hmm. in Boston, and I'm glad that I did. But the upshot is, is I lost, you know, between September and December of 2018, I was extremely ill you know, I wasn't getting treated. I was under the impression that I had a different kind of cancer than I actually had. So, so I I just want to just, just express that to people that it's really good to talk to other people and get a second opinion Mm -hmm. and, and talk to specialists. 
so during that time, I, I ended up, you know, leaving the MFA program. I stayed in touch with everybody there. And I, I was lucky to be able to be healthy enough to go back in June. And it was all online because I'm immune compromised. Yeah. There, was, there wasn't any way I could participate in that in the real world. I had to do it virtually. Right. And just thinking back, so you had been a graphic designer and photographer. What kind of pushed you to to go into the MFA program? Well, I always wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think that I've benefited so much from the teachers that I've had in my life. Yeah. And especially my photography teachers. I've had some great ones. And I feel like I feel as if, you know, as an artist, like it took me a very long time to realize this, but as an artist or as artists, we do see things differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we can share with people. And that's something that I want to share. I think I, I never realized and looked at that as a benefit or, you know, as an advantage. It was just something that I did. And so now I, I think that that's something that I can use to teach others to sort of open your mind, open people's minds mm -hmm. and, and to be able to look at something in a, in a very different way. And I think that's something we can all do. I think what happens is we get, I think we get stuck in certain ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. We might be in a social group and they have a certain way of thinking and we forget that we can think outside that. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember that someone was shocked when I, when I told them that, you know, I was making hair and asking people to make mm -hmm. hair and, and you're, you're doing that while you're getting chemo. And I, I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And she was sort of in disbelief that I would even entertain doing something like mm -hmm. that. But that's what I had to do. And I think that we can all think beyond our, our scope. We have our scope and we have our daily lives and we have our, our worlds that we live in. And I think it's so healthy when we can just take a leap mm -hmm. and take a look at something else and flip something upside down and say, okay, what does that look like upside down? Yeah. You know, what does that look like from the back mm -hmm. or from the side? You know, how can I look at this in a different way and make it into something positive? And this project just sort of fell into place for me. It was something that I needed. And I think that's part of where my passion comes from is that I really needed to do something. And I was so grateful to find something that helped. Absolutely. And I love that idea of kind of looking at it from all sides as a metaphor and also as a literal, like something that we tell our students when they're making a sculpture, when they're making some hair, you know, turn it around, look at it from all sides. How does it look? Absolutely. How does it work? And then do the same with a problem you're dealing with. Flip it around, turn it, look at it from all sides. Oh. Right. I mean, you can just apply these principles to so many things. And I think that we just get, you know, sort of used to trying to solve problems in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be able to just expand our scope and look at others as examples and, and try to solve our problem through making and through art and through activity. I'm a true believer in activity. Your creative expression might be running. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm a runner and I did as much walking and running as I could while I was under, when I was getting chemo, I did, I stayed very physically active in spite of being in a lot of pain, but that's mm -hmm. what my body wanted to do. So what is it that you want to do? You know, so it, it's all sort of about what's the modality that's going to bring you the most joy mm -hmm. and is going to bring you the most health and, and wellness, I think. Yeah. And sometimes you have to experiment to find that. Yeah, absolutely. And I like to also get into sort of the 
I'm not sure I want to say business side, but like the, how do you kind of get your message out and <laughs> <laughs> like the sort of nitty gritty of that stuff. I know you've used social media and just, would you have tips for other artists interested in doing collaborative work like this? I will say that I am, I do not consider social media my strong suit, Okay, <laughs> but I try very hard to, you know, to post things that I think that are interesting to people mm-hmm. and that are interactive. Mm-hmm. I think it's also good to to interact with, with your audience. You know, I interact on, on different levels with them. And I always try to respond to anybody who says anything about any of the pieces that I wear. And mm-hmm. and I think too, you know, there's we live in a world where there there's so many images, right? There's just, you know, it's a cascade of images every day, millions and millions and millions. And it's mm-hmm. very difficult to set yourself apart. I think one of the ways that worked for me is that I took a chance putting myself in the images. Yeah. Right now, you know, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal, but I was not a self-portrait artist. I was not interested in being photographed. Mm-hmm. And that was very hard for me. And I think people respected that, mm-hmm. that I was able to become part of the art. Mm-hmm. And and that really, I think, separated me to a certain extent. That's a different story when you start to put yourself in your artwork. Yeah. And I hear that advice even for artists that are not taking self-portraits or sharing themselves as part of the artwork. But I keep hearing that advice to, you know, share your face, like share yourself, even if it's just you standing in front of your painting or sculpture or whatever you're making. So... Yeah. And even that is hard. (laughs) I think we all need to become familiar with ourselves Mm -hmm. again. And through this process, you know, I, I changed on the inside and I changed dramatically on the outside. And that was very hard in terms of my identity. Mm -hmm. I still think that I don't know who I am after cancer. I, mm-hmm. I don't know who this person is yet. I, I'm not sure where this person is going. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what my purpose is. And that's a very uncertain and difficult thing to go through. Mm-hmm. And I think the sooner we can become familiar with ourselves, with how our bodies change, the sooner that we can accept ourselves illness is a huge exercise in self-acceptance. And you don't need to have an illness to accept yourself. You know, we spend so much time being hard on ourselves and not being happy with the way we look or with what size and shape we are or what we're doing. Once you get sick, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. And if that's something I can give to somebody, that's my gift to you is that start your self-acceptance now. Don't wait till you get cancer. Don't wait till you get sick. We can all get used to our faces changing. We can get used to wrinkles. We need to really take a deep look at what's inside of us and be right with ourselves inside and the outside will follow suit. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. Yeah, such a powerful message. And thank you for also sharing that, you know, I feel like there's vulnerability in saying, I don't know what my identity is anymore, that I'm you know, sharing that journey and that you're still kind of in that journey and, and trying to figure it out. Yes. I think you would, you'd find that other people who've gone through cancer and other 
artists as well that I've spoken to. Once you, cancer is very structured, right? It's, it's very structured in terms of treatment. You always know where you're going to be. You're, you're sort of like a preschooler where mm-hmm. parents need to have their, their children in schedules and structures because there's work to be done and we need to, to make sure there's daycare and things like that, right? So in a way, cancer is very structured like that. You know when you're going to get treated. You know when you're going to get scanned. It's all sort of planned out mm-hmm. months ahead of time. And I think when you lose that structure, just like you would as a child, if you lose structure, mm-hmm. you know, you lose yourself. You, you sort of lose what, what you are. And I think I really became disoriented when the process and the structure of cancer change to me being somebody who didn't have cancer anymore. And that support Mm. system isn't there for you anymore because you don't need it, but it happens abruptly. And, you know, you're sort of just stuck sort of standing in the middle of of a room and I'm like, well, I'm okay now. What do I do? You know, in my case, you know, I pretty much lost my job. I, you know, I had lost any sense of what a day was like before I had cancer. What was my day like? I, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been very difficult trying to integrate back into the world. You know, I still have, you know, side effects from the treatments that I had. So I don't feel 100%, but I do the best that I can. So working on a project like this was just really helpful for me to just, you know, kind of get me back in the rhythm of some sort of schedule and sort of some sort of activity and, and some sort of flowing of time. I think we all think that, okay, you're, you know, like we were talking about earlier that, okay, you're cancer free, let's party on. But, you know, for the patient, it doesn't really feel like that. I think there's, I think it's probably been the hardest time in my treatment was finding out that I was cancer free. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just been about six or seven months and it's a lot of life to put back together. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we have to slowly figure out what that life is going to be. And in my case, I, I just haven't quite figured it out yet. Oh, that is, thank you for sharing that. I feel like that's sort of eye opening because I definitely hadn't thought about that sort of loss of all the structure and, you know, how in the first place it cancer and the treatment for it derails your life. And in so many ways, you know, you can't really work. You have to, you know, stop the per the school program that you were in. And then going through that, it becomes its own sort of structure and way of being. And then that ends. And, and how do you change when that ends? Right. It's, it's like a mourning process. Yeah. You sort of go through this mourning that, you know, you're not going to be the same person that that you were. Right. And the change that you've been through is so drastic that you sort of don't recognize the person that you are now. So, you know, it becomes a real puzzle in terms of how to build that identity again. I mean, obviously your personality is the same or similar. You know, I'm still the same person that way, but I but I think very differently. Mm-hmm. And I do things differently. I, I think the, the treatments that I had were, were, you know, it's a lot of chemicals. It's a lot of treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, they've slowed me down. I think slower. I move slower. I forget mm-hmm. things. So, you know, that's all something that we had, you know, that I had to learn to adapt to. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of the lesson. A lot of, you know, a friend of mine said to me, she said, I didn't feel like I was really an adult until I got cancer. Mm-hmm. And I, 
I understand that now because you are really forced to look at things that you wouldn't have to consider. And you are confronted with a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And it really does make you into a stronger, more thoughtful person, I would say. Yeah. And I just, I love the the way, the metaphor you had with the structure of school, because I feel like that is, especially right now, something so many people can relate to. And you know, children right now are going through or have been for the last several months going through that kind of loss of structure, that disorientation and, you know, trying to to figure out what life looks like on this side of things. Right. Yeah. And teachers are too. So yeah. what is, you know, what's the structure going to be and what's, what's the structure that's going to work for okay. everyone? So we are all living in a, in a time of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And what I can say is I can just urge people to keep active and keep making and keep thinking, you know, keep moving forward. We can all keep moving forward. If we have to do it in smaller increments, that's mm-hmm. fine. But just keep yourself moving forward and keep yourself healthy by thinking and making and doing and sharing that with other people. People need to connect. We are so disconnected right now. And my, my project, what, what, one of the, the huge things about my project is I really wanted to connect people. And I'm so happy when I find somebody who, who just kind of stumbles, uh, you know, across the project and, you know, it's, it's just so happy to see something like this and something different and it made them smile and they connect with me in that way. And we so need that. We need human connection and it's so lacking Mm. right now. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about that connection, where can people kind of connect with you and contribute to the project? Well, if you'd like to make hair, which I I urge you to, I only need, I think about eight more to have a hundred, maybe nine. Wow. And and I'd really want to reach that goal of 100. Mm -hmm. You can message me at can you make hair on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm also on Facebook at can you make hair for me. And I have a website, can you make hair for me.com. So I I sort of list all of the things that are upcoming. So I I have a show at Creighton College at Creighton University in Omaha coming up next Mm -hmm. year in uh, in the spring. We hope that it's going to be virtual. We're pretty sure it's going to be virtual. Mm -hmm. I also have some pieces on view at Blossom Fighting Cancer, which is a a show that promotes artists who have had cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be in Paris. I think it's September Mm -hmm. 5th. And that's all on the website too. But, you know, I also, if you're interested in supporting the project, you know, I do sell prints and that really helps me to keep the project going. There's also a GoFundMe for Can You Make Hair? So, you know, five bucks can go a long way. I can go to the thrift store and get, you know, some, you know, materials that that might help with something that someone's making. So, you know, I'm really grateful for anybody who's, who's reached out and supported the project. And I'm happy to talk to anybody. If you have a group that you think is interested in my story mm-hmm. and would like to make hair, I'm happy to talk to anybody who who would like to try to do this project themselves or, you know, a community group or people who are going through cancer. I'll, I'll speak to anybody about it. Yeah, that's amazing. And it might be something really valuable for teachers to bring into the classroom. So even doing, I don't know if you would be open to talking to group like classes, groups of kids about sure. it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we did a little bit of that with some a virtual camp this mm-hmm. summer, and that was a lot of fun. And so, you know, I spoke to the kids about what the project is, how I started it. I showed them examples mm-hmm. of pieces that people have made, and I modeled them for them. Oh, nice. And I, I kind of showed them the pieces from all sides. Yes. And then they had a couple of hours to go and try and make it themselves. And the teachers had given them some materials ahead of time, but some kids already had things that they wanted to do. But I try to give a wide variety of examples Mm -hmm. and then you know talk a little bit about what it is what what is it what's it like not to have hair what and and what are the characteristics of hair what what is hair to you Mm -hmm. so that's also important you know it's a physical piece of us and we all sort of have different kinds of hair we could talk forever about hair there are so many products that have to do with hair so so you know how does that fit into this kind of project too our attitudes about what hair is and and what we do with it yeah i love that Uh, Thank you so much, Eileen. Before we kind of wrap up, is there anything else that you would want to share? I just want to say that I'm just so grateful to people who have reached out to me and who supported the project. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping that there might be a book made out of the project. We don't know yet. And hopefully that will happen. And if the book happens, you know, that's going to help support the project and keep the project going. I will make, I will wear hair and we'll photograph hair as long as it comes in, as long as people want to make it. So I'll be here if if you want to do it. So you can just contact me and let me know. Awesome. Well, I have to do it and I might have to work with, I have a five-year-old who might be very excited about oh, this fun. idea. So yeah. Yes, yeah, that'll be fun. I had a friend with a, who was, uh, had a five-year-old neighbor yeah. and during, uh, you know, all of this quarantine, all the self-quarantine, you know, they, they made something together. So, you know, it can be so much fun, you know, just looking around and seeing what you have at home. Yeah, it sounds like a really fun project. You know, and a good way to to have those conversations that are a little harder to have sometimes. Yes, that's that's what I hope. I hope people yeah. will learn to communicate better through collaboration and through art. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Eileen. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. I'm so pleased to be here. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Ah, thank you, Eileen. I really appreciate how vulnerable she was in sharing her continued struggles with her adjusting identity. That message to accept ourselves is so powerful, but also very difficult to embody. My teensy tiny little bit of advice is to start wherever you can, just like we try to do with our students. Meet them where they are and meet yourself where you are. Now, maybe that means just taking a deep breath every time you catch yourself in negative internal self-talk. The more strides we can make on both embracing ourselves and embracing the differences we see in others, the better we can model this for students. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.